Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am chock with back to school vibes, even though I am a fully grown woman. Who doesn't love a new pencil case though, right? Right, right. Does Um, it say YOLO on it? (laughs) It says cray cray. (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy and this week I did a speech. What did you do a speech about? I did a speech about Brexit. I already knew that. Mm. So did I, to be fair. Whoop, whoop, whoop. And I'm Jen Offord and I miss the heatwave. Still quite hot, Jen. It's not hot enough. Later on, author Hannah Begbie talks about her debut novel, Mother, and being the mum of a child with cystic fibrosis. In a first for us, we have a cracking chat with the world's only female Bruce Springsteen cover band, the She Street Band. That's not the first for us. The first is, we actually get a tune out of them. Woo! I'm chatting to tour guide Sophie Campbell and Santander's Head of Inclusion and Diversity, Jess Chu, about the Santander Cycles Tour de Force, and I'm also chatting to Charlton Athletics women's team players Charlie Clifford and Amber Stobbs about the upcoming FA Women's Championship League. And I do Disney's Treasure Planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the correct face. I'm just staring at yeah. Hannah darkly. But first, great taste, bad moves and not so slight returns. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Like a balloon blimp of Sadiq Khan. Were that in any way necessary, funny or enjoyed by more than six people? I did very much enjoy that they had to ask Sadiq Khan for permission to fly blimp Khan over Parliament Square. And also Khan's response, which was basically the partridge shrug. And they clad Blimp Khan in a yellow bikini as a nod to the fact he banned the Protein World Beach Body Ready advert, the absolute bastard, listening to women. Well, he is, dairy. he is one of the world's leading feminists, after all. He is. I can't believe you got in there saying that before I did. I just thought you snooze, you lose, Hannah. <laughs> in fairness, Jen did read it off Hannah's T-shirt. <laughs> Art lovers were shocked to their very core this week when a portrait of Nigel Farage failed to sell at auction. Sorry, what? What the fuck, eh? People wouldn't know good art if it sold him a pipe dream and applied for a German passport. (laughs) Is that what he's doing in the picture? (laughs) Is it the picture of him with his back to watching the Queen's speech with like an (laughs) Ikea glass with a can of Bombardier in it? And the shelf that's been put up on an angle. On a wonk. Yeah. The portrait of the blancmange face Wazak listed as part of the Royal Academy's summer exhibition failed to attract any bids, which is a long way from the £25,000 it was expected to reach. And that's not like you, Kim, not to deliver, right? No. And while we're on this subject, can I just say to media organisations, which in this case include the Scotsman and iNews, the headline, Farage portrait worth £25,000 fails to sell, is not correct. I refer you to my dad's often annoying, but in this instance, entirely accurate expression. Something is only worth what somebody is prepared to pay for it, which in this case is fuck all. Right on, Papa Dunleavy. Artist David Griffith said he hoped the painting would find a good home. <laughs> like it's the lost puppy. <laughs> anyway, the voice I'd like to say. calling me <laughs> down the road. It's where I want to be. It really is. I was really struggling to think of any wall on earth that would be improved by Nigel Farage's portrait. And the only thing I could think of was the maze prison after the dirty <laughs> protests. And even then, I might rather look at someone's shit than a, a picture of Nigel Farage. I'd like to say, David, if you are listening, I will give you £100 for that right now. Because I'm pretty sure that I could raise a lot of money with it. Which I think we can all agree is the last thing Farage would want. And therefore, the only reasonable course of action. 
Are you going to give that money to the NHS? Yeah, yeah. 350 million pounds, <laughs> I reckon, I could raise from it. And I think you could take that to any village fate, really. Maybe not in some parts of the country, but any, certainly any village fate in London. Or Pin where the tail I on the donkey. <laughs> and play Pin the tail on the donkey, use it as a dartboard, throw wet things at it and make a lot of money. I like how vague you are about wet things. Yeah. Wet things. For those with a weak stomach. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to set you off, Hannah, but uh, it's been a busy couple of days watching Prime Minister Theresa May strutting her stuff while on a trip to Africa. You thought the Mobot was cringe, and I really did, and I still do. There you go, I've said it. Brace yourselves for the Maybot and her moves that I just can't do justice with words. Does anyone want to try? I actually think it's the most human Theresa May has looked in years. Absolutely. No, 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 I agree, but... um. Yeah. It doesn't suit her, does no. it? No. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. Does not compute. <laughs> so, so what started in South Africa last Tuesday sadly did not end there as T-Bizzle went about her business of convincing non-EU countries that we're not a bunch of dickheads, despite vast evidence to the contrary. <laughs> nope. She was back at it again two days later at the UN offices in Nairobi with all the grace and style of me, a bottle of Pinot down when Crazy in Love comes on at a wedding disco. Absolutely mesmerising. <laughs> I'd suggest we check whether she's wearing red shoes, but May appears to be a strictly no-deal kind of woman, so I'm fairly sure we won't see her in Georgia clutching a solid gold fiddle anytime soon, even if she constantly seems to be at some sort of crossroads. And by Jove, is she willing just to stand there, going absolutely fucking nowhere, while shouting about real progress like a broken sat-nav? What she's having none of is the idea of a referendum to ratify any government deal. Another vote, says May, would be a betrayal. Um, talking of betrayal, guess who's back? Back again. Johnson's back. Tell a friend. Although surely none of his trust him, given Boris has got about as much integrity as wet cardboard. The former foreign secretary, continuing prize pillock, and if he has his way, future PM, remains consistent in his belief that in order to take control, you have to leave and has taken to his Daily Telegraph column to denounce May's checkers plans in what other media outlets have termed a scathing attack, but my mum would call a paddy. Using a strange wrestling metaphor, Boz announced, The fix is in. The whole thing about as preordained as a bout between Big Daddy and giant haystacks. And in this case, I'm afraid, the inevitable outcome is a victory for the EU, with the UK lying flat on the canvas and 12 stars circling symbolically over our semi-conscious head. Because, to paraphrase the fully conscious Belland, it's not about getting the best for the UK and all its inhabitants. It's all about winning. Sure. And what a win it'll be. Yeah. Just FYI, a friend of mine owns a guitar that he claims to have found at Crossroads in Hull. <laughs> in Hull? Yeah. That is where the devil spends a lot of his time. Yeah. Speaking of time, how long is a long time? Stupid uh, question, right? Yeah. yeah. But we maybe came closer to an answer this week when comedian Louis C.K., who in November promised to step back and take a long time to listen, made a surprise appearance at a New York comedy club. The comedian lost his production deal with FX last year after it was revealed he had sexually harassed six younger female colleagues, including masturbating in front of them. We've all done it. So nine months. Nine months is a long time. Oh, please. I've had things on my stairs waiting to be taken up for longer than that. <laughs> the only people allowed to say nine months is a long time are children waiting to go to Disneyland, 
and women whose unborn children are dancing on their bladders. For the rest of us, nine months is so recent, we can't believe our hair has grown back that much since we had it cut the other day. There's so much to say about this, I've scarcely got the time or the mental energy, so let's skip the fact this was an unannounced appearance and the fact he made a joke about a rape whistle and skip straight to the fact that he got a standing ovation from some men in the crowd. And on Twitter, with a depressing amount of blue ticks welcoming back the wank-stained wonder, including Michael Ian Black and Saturday Night Live's Michael Shea, both who use the expression, he served his time, in tweets. Which we all know is a euphemism for has been to prison, which, as we all know, did not happen in this case. Che later deleted his tweets. Black didn't, but apologised and donated money to an anti-sexual violence organisation. Now, there is a potential debate about how long is long enough for CK to stay in the wilderness, but that's not really what the subtext of those tweets was. It was... Come on, guys, he only wanked in front of minions. You're still banging on about that. One of the things I find most aggravating about this is when comedians behave like that, it reinforces the narrative that anyone who objects to a sex pest appearing on stage in barely more time than it takes to get gist stains out of upholstery (laughs) is lacking a sense of humour. The old joyless feminist trope. So to be clear about this, I was never a Louis C.K. fan. If he spends the rest of his career doing stand-up to tiny rooms full of misogynists, it's no more skin off my nose than the fact that that's how Jim Davidson pays for his divorces. (laughs) Michael Shea, on the other hand, SNL's Weekend Update now joins the depressingly long list of things I love that has been tainted by one of the men involved being a total dick to women. Because while Che and Black and the myriad other people within the industry try to sell us a redemption arc story, they are proving that actually no one has learned a single fucking thing. Great punchline, guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, time, eh? He's done his time. Well, I I mean, there is an argument that I suppose, how long do we keep people out there? But if you start saying nine months is enough, do we then, like, extrapolate some kind of algorithm that means Kevin Spacey can be working again in three years? Well, probably. Well, look at, like, Chris Brown. Didn't take him very long, did it, after, you know, opening a can of whoop-ass on Rihanna before he was, like, back in the fucking charts again. Like, it happens, doesn't it? Do you know what? It really annoys me that they just get to go, oh, come on, guys, what are you fucking mivering about? And then go, oh, I'm really sorry, and now I'm going to pay some money to charge. Don't say it in the first place. Like, the damage is done, isn't it, you know? Well, the thing about Michael Shea, and like I say, dis- proper disappointed in Michael Shea, because Michael Shea's the sort of person I'd have paid money to go and see no longer... Obviously, part of the reason he tried to make this some sort of musing on the concept of fame, which, again, might be interesting if it wasn't all an excuse for the fact that it's basically saying, great, Louis C.K.'s back. But in which he was saying, you know, he's lost a lot. He lost a production deal. He's lost the respect of his peers. Well, not you, clearly, Michael, because Mm. you're defending him on fucking Twitter. Hmm. Well, in some more utterly horrific news... A report published last week by the Children's Society found that self-harm in teenagers is once again on the rise, with teenage girls worst affected. According to the findings of the survey of 11,000 teenagers, 22% of girls and 9% of boys said they'd self-harmed in the year prior to the report's publication. Almost half the teenagers who identified as being attracted to members of both sexes or the same sex had said that they had self-harmed. 
Of course, the pressures on young people are many and varied, but the Children's Society Chief Executive Matthew Reid drew particular attention to factors such as gender stereotypes, sexuality and worries about how they look, particularly for girls. And we will be talking to body image and mental health campaigner and writer Natasha Devon about this a bit more next week. Let's talk about Alex Salmond and his crowdfunder. And let's be clear from the top, Salmon denies the allegations of sexual misconduct filed against him, which remain under investigation. OK. The allegations of incidents in 2013 were made in January this year. Salmon was told about them in March and made them public himself in August after Leslie Evans, Scotland's top civil servant, told him that she was going to go public with the story. Salmon argues that by naming him, while leaving the two women accusing him of harassment anonymous, the complaints process breached his rights to confidentiality and due process. And so, the former SNP leader and Scottish First Minister began seeking a judicial review of the way the complaints have been handled. Fair enough, he absolutely has a right to do that. However, he decided to do so by starting a crowdfunding appeal to pay for his legal action. Salmon raised more than £100,000 in just four days. It is just such an arsehole move, leveraging his power and popularity in an attempt to weaken mechanisms that exist to hold people accountable for acts of sexual violence. And of course, his supporters piled on the complainants, claiming that the complainants had acted out of malicious intent and ought to be exposed. Salmon's actions have been condemned by Rape Crisis Scotland, and understandably, power, money, celebrity, a triumvirate of reasons people stand behind men accused of sexual misconduct, as we just heard with Louis C.K. But, like, if sexual harassment is so common, why don't more women come forward, though? Ah! You know what's particularly aggravating about this? A month ago... All of it. Rape crisis in Glasgow was defunded by children in need. We talked about this on stage when we were in Scotland. Defunded and had to start closing down resources and were desperate. Yep. Can you imagine what £100,000 would have done for them? Well, it's more than paid for Salmon's legal costs and he has said that he will give the rest of the money and you'd think maybe he's going to give it to like a women's charity or something. Is he going to give it to some incels? <laughs> is he going to have a statue of himself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, holding the tiniest statue oh, is, of himself. Oh, is it a statue of Lucy K- C.K. wanking? Yeah, that's what he's going to put <laughs> the rest of the money to. No, he's just going to donate it to various good causes across Scotland. Payday lenders Wonga found themselves in need of a couple of quid last week after it was reported the company had gone into administration. The controversial company, known for its crippling rates of interest charged to vulnerable customers who are struggling to make do between paychecks, had apparently fallen foul of a deluge of compensation claims against it. Now, I actually uh, originally put this out there was a good news story uh, because we would say it couldn't have happened to a nicer bunch, but it doesn't actually end there. The collapse leaves an estimated 200,000 customers still owing more than £400 million in short-term loans. And that debt is expected to be sold on to another lending firm. So this, and the number of those due compensation as yet unpaid, means that Wonga customers are likely to face yet another kick in the balls by those unscrupulous cunts. £2,000. It's a lot of money to take out. That's an average of £2,000. That's a lot of money. I mean, feel free to correct me on my maths, listeners, but Jesus. Mm. And as the Financial Ombudsman Service pointed out, due to the nature of the business, there is no protection offered to consumers under the Financial Services Compensation Scheme in this instance. Anyone fancy some good news? Yes, please. By the end of this year, women in England will be allowed to take the second abortion pill at home. That'll bring England in line with Scotland and Wales. 
Clearly, there's still a lot of work to be done for the women of Northern Ireland. So no slacking with the activism, please, people. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we open our guide on how to treat women, a.k.a. the Bible. Obvious choice. So, Mickey, do you remember that conversation we had in 2014 when I said that I wanted... We said we were never going to talk about that again, Anna. <laughs> when I said that I wanted to cover the Republican primary and you were like, why? And I said, because it's basically just like an absolute carnival of crap in which complete idiots come forward and give speeches about why we need to ban wanking as if that was in any way enforceable <laughs> or unlikely to end in civil unrest. Or an impromptu comedy night. Yeah. <laughs> and then what happened? What happened was Donald Trump came along and the Republican primary, which is basically, if you don't, like, if you're listening and you don't know what the Republican primary is, it's basically a PowerPoint presentation that America gives the world on the current status of the great experiment that is happening within its borders. And it's generally completely hilarious. But but the last one was ruined by the presence of Donald Trump, obviously. But it appears like the 2018 midterms might be kind of stepping in for that. So this it's week... the circus coming to town, the Hannah. The circus is coming to town. Donald Trump this week was in South Carolina making some complaints about redistricting there, which might lead to uh, maybe some Democrats actually winning. It's actually, there's accusations of gerrymandering going on. You're wondering why I'm talking about this in Sexism of the Week. Well, Sad. Because, yeah, it's not very Sexism of the Week, but actually why Donald Trump was there was to support the person who is standing for the Republicans in South Carolina for Congress. His name is the Reverend Mark Harris. So who is the Reverend Mark Harris? He is a man who has been giving speeches over previous well, four or five years, but they're really, obviously now people are starting to focus on them, in which, firstly, he suggests it's unhealthy for women to have careers. Sure. Yeah, he also... Uh, I am quite tired. He also, he also <laughs> gave a crack speech in which he said that a woman should submit to her husband's will because what she's doing there is she's not actually submitting to her husband's will. She's submitting to God's will, which is coming mm-hmm. through her husband, which leaves all three of us in quite a tricky situation. Because we don't have a husband, and I don't know who to submit to Fuck. in that case. A couple of people on Twitter suggested my cats. And, um, yeah, that's not a bad idea. He also says that defying your husband is the equivalent of defying God. Who can I defy? As a woman? Yeah. Pfft, no one. Shit. I hope you're not arguing with me, Jen, because God told me <laughs> that you had to just... Accept this. And God told me that you two would start this up again, so just behave yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it means for us three unmarried Harridans. All I can say <laughs> is that we should consider ourselves lucky that we're not lesbians. He doesn't want them to be able to be married at all. Who should they submit to? Well, I'm thinking him, probably. Okay, sure. Probably. Sounds reasonable. If anyone knows any of the answers to this, I would be really interested. But um, in the meantime, the Unmarried Harridans is our new band name. <laughs> <laughs> we will be at a toilet venue near you at some point in the future. This guy is running to be in Congress, supported by the President of the United States. So much for the separation of church and state, eh? That noise you can hear, that's Thomas Jefferson turning in his grave. Hello, Jen here. When I found out about the Santander Cycle Tour de Force Inspirational Women's Tour, I was obviously, I mean, I don't like to talk about it, but I mean, I've probably mentioned it once or twice, you know, I don't 
done a bit of cycling in my time. So basically, birds and bicycles, it's kind of, it was almost as if the Mayor of London had literally thought of me and created a thing. He didn't, that would be weird, but if you're listening to Deke, maybe you should. So basically, what we're talking about is a fantastic tour of London, taking in some sites and monuments to top birds who've done excellent things. And I was lucky enough to catch up with Sophie Campbell, tour guide extraordinaire who's leading these tours and also Jess Chu the head of diversity and inclusion at Santander here they are hello I'm in Hyde Park with Sophie Campbell a blue badge guide and a guide of the Santander and TFL sponsored tour de force an inspirational women's tour Sophie tell us a little bit about this tour what it is and 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 where you're going to be taking me today (laughs) it's quite an interesting tour because it's really like a tour of two parts so we're starting off in the park because a lot of people coming on this have not used these bikes before or they've never cycled before or they've never cycled in London so one of the things we're hoping to do is get women cycling that would be one good thing to come out of it and the other thing is really looking at the history of the women who obviously this year because it's the 100th anniversary of the first limited votes for women but it was the bridgehead that began so 10 years later we actually got the vote yay and um and this tour is about going from here to westminster which is obviously where a lot of the action took place because we're near the houses of parliament and we're not only looking at the women who fought at the time for the vote so really in the late 19th century and the early 20th century but we're also looking at the women today that have benefited and women all the way but in between in the 20th and early 21st century. We're going to be seeing a number of things. One of the reasons I wanted to start in Hyde Park was because we're near um, work by Zaha Hadid uh, who's the British Iraqi architect uh, who got quite a lot of bad press in her lifetime and did some amazing buildings so it's really nice to start with her and with a young architect Frida Escobedo who's basically inherited you know she's sort of taken on she's a modern young architect so that's great to see too. That's both around the Serpentine. And then we're going to go right across to Westminster and see some of the classic um, suffragette memorial, for example, um, and also the suffragists. And it's, impo- it's important to differentiate between those two terms. So the suffragists, basically people who were fighting uh, for votes for women, uh, and the suffragettes were the people who took it on a stage and really just felt that there wasn't enough action being taken, and they took that action. And controversial, you know, really, even now, quite a lot of what they were doing would be controversial. And there's also an interesting class angle to it because we're going to be mainly in the West End and the city of Westminster. And that was by nature fairly wealthy. Now there are other tours and there's a a, a colleague of mine, a Blue Badge colleague who does um, excellent uh, walking tours in the East End same subject but completely different cast of women and probably the one woman they share between them is Sylvia Pankhurst who gave up the sort of more fashionable side of it in order to go to the East End and work with working class women. It's interesting that the East End was the unfashionable side of it then and now look how things have changed. So how did you come to be involved in this project? Um, Because I'm a cycling guide, so they asked if there were any women who cycled and who guided and wanted to do this. Uh, Well, you'd be surprised that there aren't as many as you'd think. I I mean, I think probably there's a pool of about four or five, and this is a really busy time of year. And so I was interested, and it's, you know, been watching all the marches and and couldn't go on. I'd love to have gone on the Women's March with all the coloured banners. That would have been an amazing thing to do, and I was away, couldn't do it. Uh, But I've been watching it, and I've been watching colleagues, quite a lot of colleagues are dressed up, you know, to do their their, um, tours. And it's been a really interesting subject to research for contemporary women as well as the women who fought at the time and I think you also you feel guilty actually that you 
are not more grateful all the time. And I don't spend more time trying to go to debates in Parliament and stuff like that, not, you know, to watch. I, I, I think it's, it's made me much more aware. If there were women who were interested in starting cycling in London, maybe, or, or in other cities, what would be your advice to them? Where would be like a good place to start? Start in a park. That's exactly what we're doing now because, you know, it, it's interesting. We've done so far four of these tours, so we've had about 40, 46, 50, 50 people, not all women, you know, it's about 20% men, maybe few, few, fewer than that. But quite a few people have said to us, I was really worried about cycling in London. So that's why we've got a guide at the front, we've got a guide at the back, and we give a really good safety briefing at the beginning, and the pace is gentle. It's not any sort of a race. And we are doing them specifically on Sundays also for that reason, because the traffic is much quieter. And so it's been really inspiring to see people getting off the bike at the end of the thing, going, that was actually really good fun. I thought I was going to be frightened. And you can start at a Hyde Park, obviously, it's really lucky, but every city is going to have, every city with uh, hire bikes or bikes that you can rent from a, a, a bike place are going to have somewhere quiet. And that's the key thing, is just don't scare the pants off yourself. You know, there's no, no point doing that. Um, yeah, and just, just, you know, take it easy and, and be aware that you're sharing, particularly in, in a big city, you're sharing not only the road but the pavement, because we do push on the pavements. If, if the traffic is really unpleasant, we'll get off and push, and everyone has to just be courteous to the pedestrians as well. You know, we're all sharing this city. Sophie, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Enjoy. <laughs> I'm joined by Jess Chu, Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Santander. Jess, thanks very much for joining us. No problems. Thanks for having me. So just can you, first of all, can you just tell me a little bit about the tour, how it came about? So the opportunity came about as we're always looking for ways that we can show our support for the development and progression of women. Uh, and I think for us at Santander, it's, it's, it's key that we continue to advertise in our external market and try and attract talent from all different backgrounds or, um, across the United Kingdom. Um, and although this is based in London, it's a great way for us to show our support for, for women and for the centenary of, of the suffragettes and, and the right to vote. And so we thought this was a perfect opportunity. It also utilises the Santander cycles, which is fantastic, and, and lets people get around the city and have a look at all the wonderful monuments that there are and all, all the ways that we can pay tribute to the amazing women who have helped make Britain what it is today. So we thought this was fitting for us um, and aligns very much with our diversity and inclusion strategy and around what we're trying to do for our, our women ourselves internally and um, how we continue to look for talent externally as well. There's a huge gender pay gap in the financial and insurance services sector, which is largely caused by the absence of women in top jobs. What are you doing at Santander to sort of combat that? Yeah, um, and it's a good question. And, and there are a number of different things. I wish there was one solution. There's not. There's, it, it's a sustained, multiple-pronged approach to, to tackling um, and, and we are um, looking at it from that perspective as well. Um, so if you think about our external recruitment, how we recruit talent and how we look for f um, female talent in the external marketplace, we make sure that for our senior roles that we have male and female interviewers doing uh, conducting the interviews, that we have a balanced shortlist where possible. We are within financial services. There are certain roles where it is, it is difficult for us to have females on the shortlist, but where possible we really strive to do that. Externally as well, we you know we work with with headhunters and recruiters who are just as passionate about diversity and inclusion as we are, uh, and and we're constantly looking for for different ways. So whether that's networks, whether that's external memberships, etc., and the tour de force of ways that we can get our message out there that we are an employer for women.
Internally, we obviously look at our development um, employee networks, we look at coaching, we look at unconscious bias training, we look at reverse mentoring, we participate in a number of external organisations like the 30% Club, uh, partnering with business in the community, lots of different ways that we can support uh, the, the progression or the retention, progression and development of our women internally as well. Um, and this is all obviously done in conjunction with our male colleagues and peers because we need their help and support to achieve this across the bank. So going back a little bit to the tour de force again, Brenna, mind the sort of absence of women in top jobs in the in the city and in various other male-dominated industries, not just the financial services sector. How important is the visibility of women in those top jobs? And also going back to the tour de force a little bit, how important is the visibility of women across you know all walks of life? Yeah, no, I think it's really important for everybody, whether that's male or females, but if, you know, focusing on females right now for this podcast, I think it's really important we have role models, people we can look up to, people we can aspire to be, people who show us that actually things are possible, people who have the courage to do things, you know, when, when we look at the, the tour de force and some of the sites on the way, some of these women are, are so courageous and, and without them, we wouldn't be where we are today. Um, and so I think we all need role models. We all need people to look up to. We all need people who are treading a path before us so that we can see it's possible for us to do it as well. Um, and I think that happens in, in um, organizations. You need those role models throughout the corporate structure, not just at the top. You need them in the middle. You need them at the bottom. If you think you're coming in as a graduate, you know, the top of the tree is so, so far away that you need those role models incrementally up that corporate ladder as well. So I, I think it's about role models. I think it's about showing that it's possible and showing that I, I can do this as well. You're pretty familiar with the route. Who's, who's your favourite? I, I have a couple. Yeah, I have a couple. The Serpentine Gallery is, is one of my favourite places, I think, actually, in London. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being right there, you know, Kensington Gardens, Hyde Park, it, it's it's relaxing. It's in the centre of, of London. You kind of, you're in a, a world all of your own within the city, which I think is amazing. So it's so a really, really love that space in London. Being Australian, I've been here 20 years and so when I first arrived, some of these places were the key things that as a tourist, now I'm a, a completely local, as a tourist, I you know went and saw these things in there and they've stuck with me um, ever since. Um, I think the next one for me is, is Parliament Square. Uh, it has this vibe, you know, right there, you know, with, with Parliament and looking at um, the Abbey as well and you see everything and you're right there on the Thames I think it's an amazing space to be in in London Um, so really pleased that the tour is going via that as well and then of course you know Florence Nightingale Jess thank you so much for joining us no problems thanks for having me so if you like the sound of that you can still catch the last two tours the 9th of September and they kick off at 11am and 2.30pm by the Santander Cycles at the Serpentine Sackler Gallery in Hyde Park. But if you miss those last two tours you can still download the tour info online and have a go yourself with some pals. I would recommend you go because Sophie is fantastic and you will learn a lot from her. But anyway, for more information, have a look online at www.tfl.gov.uk forward slash tour hyphen D, D-E that is, hyphen force. Hi, we're joined by author Hannah Begby to chat about her debut novel Mother. Hello, Hannah. Hello, thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming in. 
So your book's only been out a month and you've already won an award. Nice one. Yes, it was great. It happened about a couple of months ago. It was lovely and it was to recognise new writing through the Romantic Novelist Association. It's interesting that you say the Romantic Novelist Association because I read Mother and it deals with a child's life-altering diagnosis and her mum, Kath's struggle to cope with all the roles thrust upon her and about how she's dealing with this thing in her child's life. And bloody hell, mate. Seriously, yeah, it's heavy. It's, it's heavy. It? <laughs> it is. It is. I used to be a comedy agent, and while I was a comedy agent, I was writing romantic comedies on the bus, just to try and get a little bit of uh, stress relief. And so I always thought, you know, if I ever began to write, I would continue to write romantic comedy. Actually, when this diagnosis happened, it was a huge shock. It was uh, very tough. Cystic fibrosis is a genetic illness. It affects all organs of the body. It is a big life-changing thing and although mother is a fiction it is based on your own experiences of that's your right little boy right that's right it's based on my own experiences and just as I wasn't intending to write about it at all I was again at the time thinking about writing another comedy but as time went on st- things started to kind of fuse and I started to think about romance and relationship to that idea and started to write I think what became a kind of anti-romance within the context of something quite tragic. So yes, there is the basis of something very true, but there is a fiction built on top of that. I'm going to be honest with you and admit to being fairly ignorant about cystic fibrosis. Could you tell us a little bit more? Because you work quite hard to campaign to raise awareness now as well, don't you? That's right. So my youngest son was diagnosed when he was five weeks old, and that was nearly five years ago now. So it completely came out of the blue. It's a genetic condition. Neither my husband or I were aware that we had the cystic fibrosis gene. When we were given this kind of call almost out of the blue and visitation by a nurse and called into the hospital the next day and he was given a blood test and diagnosed that afternoon, it requires all sorts of physiotherapy and antibiotics in order to just achieve the most basic level of health. The body basically malfunctions in its process towards processing salt. So you get lots of mucus in the lungs, lots of mucus in the digestive system. So you have to get lots of physio going to get rid of that mucus because that mucus starts to capture bacteria from the environment which can lead to hospital stays, can lead to permanent damage of the lungs. For kids, it's really tricky when they're young because they love playing in wet sand, they love playing in mud, and that holds a lot of normal everyday bacteria that you and I are completely fine to inhale and cough out, but with the CF lung, it sticks and can cause permanent damage, so you have to be very careful while at the same time trying to raise your kid so that he has some fun. Yeah, I think it's a term that most people will have heard of cystic fibrosis and just not really know what it is, but something that I learned through through your book Mother is you can't get two kids with CF together. That's right, because there's a, the danger is cross-infection. For example, we know in the area around us exactly where people with cystic fibrosis live and we're in contact and we make sure that everybody knows what the other person looks like so that we can avoid going into the same shops so that we avoid taking our kids to the same playground. And the reason being is that when lots of people with cystic fibrosis, they've picked up that bacteria in the sticky mucus of their lungs, they harbour it, and then that bacteria can morph and become resistant to the bacteria that is there, which means that some of that 
is not effective with antibiotics. So if you're standing in the same vicinity as somebody who doesn't have that bacteria in their lungs and you cough in that direction and they pick up that bacteria, that can be really dangerous. So everybody keeps their distance and coughs and colds are a big thing as well. We're very, very aware that when anybody's coughing on a bus or in the same vicinity as us, we kind of we, we try not to kind of whip him away dramatically and say, get out of here. We tend to kind of go, come this way, come this way, and yeah. clean his hands, try and keep the windows open. I went to school with uh, a girl, Michelle, who had cystic fibrosis, and I was just thinking when you were saying that about with, with a lot of people with illnesses, you, you get your sense of community and your sense mm. of support from other people mm. within that mm. community, which obviously you can't get in, in, in that situation but, th- but then it occurs to me that now I suppose that, that it might be a point at which your son might be able to Skype with a fellow, I don't like using the word sufferer, that's not a great word, mm. but somebody with cystic yes. fibrosis in the future. Yeah. So actually perhaps technology might actually be helping in, yes. in that situation. Yeah, and I think there is a big there is a bit net, big network of people with cystic fibrosis who talk with each other. There's a big parental network online of parents who talk, but it's... Um, it is still really tough. The, one of the reasons that they discovered that cross-infection was so dangerous is because teenagers would be in hospital with each other and they'd be in hospital for long periods. So, of course, they'd go into their hospital rooms and they'd chat and they'd have fun together and they'd started to realise these teenagers were picking up each other's bugs. That was what they began to realise was one of the major causes of reducing life expectancy. I mean, there's lots of research around it as well, but it was a... You know, that it wasn't that long ago that that finding was made. Speaking to people online is a really interesting one because it's there's just it's a brilliant thing and it's really it's a great arena and it's very supportive. I think though probably is the case with lots of really difficult things. It takes sitting with somebody and talking to them and working your way into those issues. And I think there's really no comparison to kind of sitting with someone. Yeah. And it's a really it's a really difficult side of the illness that you you can't sit in a room with it people really and cool. share. Yeah, it's really yeah. sad. You know, cool. share that. Yeah. And parents are very careful about how they, you know, but it, because even parents with interacting right. with each other can then take yeah. a different strain because it's so virulent. Take that strain back to their kids. So That's right. No shaking yeah. hands. Yeah. No sort of giving each other a hug yeah. at the community yeah. meetings or anything. That's right. And I think everyone has slightly different approaches to to that. And you'll get, you know, some people are a bit uh, easier with that and some people are like, well, I'm just not going to go because I don't want to risk taking anything back. Mm. With absolute respect, Mm. did it make you neurotic? Oh, gosh, you know, I was quite neurotic to begin (laughs) with. And, um, you know, what's probably part of the reason I wrote that book because I just had to put some of that stuff somewhere. I think, you know, being sleep-deprived and having a, a young child and already being a little bit anxious makes you quite twitchy then having on top of it we need to you know we need to be really careful about putting putting our kids in the path of somebody you know we've got to be careful about where we take him in case there's a you know somebody's got a lung infection then when their toddler's going to playground cleaning their hands you know at home we have to make sure that people come in and take their shoes off we're really quite stringent about people washing their hands do people cooperate it's, with you? It was on a much smaller scale, when my mum was on chemo mm, and she had no yeah. immune, immune system whatsoever, I was quite Nazi in my get out. Mm. <laughs> like, sorry, yeah. if you've got a runny nose, why don't you tell me about that before you came around the house, get out. Yeah. Do people actually cooperate with you or do people still they, think you're being a bit melodramatic? You, the, the people we know, everyone knows about it now, so that's, a, that's really good. It's a really difficult thing sometimes when you have to... 
you know, if we've got peop- lots of people coming around to the house and you kind of email everyone and go, can you just tell us if you've got a cough or a cold and can you remember to take your shoes off? And everyone's brilliant about that, but every time you do that, you think, God, that's a bit shit. That I have to send that email. Yeah. And, the, you know, they can't come around because they've got a bit of a cold. And it's that moment that you kind of go, this is, this is something that can create barriers uh, to, to what you do but you know there is a balance to that there is a there's other positive stuff to that but mm-hmm. it is tough and what about your son does he just sort of take it in his stride or does that impact on him does that make him anxious at all does he, he pick up on so it? he's nearly five mm-hmm. and in a way I mean it's all he's ever known he's got an older brother as well it's all he's ever known and he's a very looking at him you wouldn't know that there was anything going on and that's another thing that makes it slightly tough because it's an invisible yeah. condition and there's uh, lots of kids with CF are often quite thin and struggle to put on weight my son is, is a unit he's a large kid <laughs> he um and he runs around a lot he's you know he's buoyant and he's pretty he's a tough kid and he's just at that stage now where he's starting to ask questions and we're starting to have to think about how we talk about it but he handles things really well he he takes eight pills at a time in his hand with breakfast wow. uncomplainingly he you know it's kind of testament to him that his like big tantrums come when we say you've got to go to bed and he says well, I need to trampoline more <laughs> you know cause when you've got that need Hannah you've yeah. got to bounce you've, you've got, got to bounce, bounce yeah. and he's uh, you know and trampolining is his physio and g- keeps it all moving so that must be a much doing. happier way of him getting physio than what you have to do when yeah. they're babies cause oh yeah when you're babies you have to pat pat the mucus off their lungs and then when they're much older it's all about running keeping them really physical loads of running loads of swimming cycling trampolining and they keep them moving all the time yeah wow in the book Kath is Mia's mum and yeah. she is very much drawn to a character who believes that the cure is out there there's going to be something because at the moment there isn't a cure is no. there no it's really well handled and you talk about NHS funding and how actually even if there is a cure it's going to really struggle to get any sort of funding could you tell us a little bit more about the research you've done around that about a year after Griffin was diagnosed I applied to be a trustee at the Cystic Fibrosis Trust and I'm no longer a trustee but during that period of time and the trust continues to be really active in campaigning government and bringing the community together to try and really bring both sides of the argument together the two sides being NHS England and the pharmaceuticals companies that are in one uh, in this case at the moment just one company that have developed truly life-changing life-saving medications and the CF Trust as a charity have been really trying alongside the community to bring those two parties closer together so that a deal can be done um, the big stumbling block is price it is too much at the moment the pricing that they're asking and they are in a state they are in negotiations at the moment and really my concern and the community's concern is that they want a deal to be reached so that the lives of their children and the people around them and the adults who have cystic fibrosis that their lives will be longer and healthier and happier and at the moment we in the UK do not have access to that medicine what can so, we do? Do we petition? What What can we there's do? Lots, the stuff happening within the community is amazing. It's it's really astonishing because there have been lots of setbacks, but also lots of really positive pieces that have pe- kept people going. There have been marches across London. There have been a, a, a big group of parents who 
approached the pharmaceutical company direct, stood outside their door. There's been debates in Parliament. People are writing to their MPs all the time. It's really a case, I think, of keeping the pressure on because, of course, we're in a in a really extraordinary situation at the moment with NHS funding, Brexit, combination of all sorts of different things. And yet, as a parent, you are just sitting at home just going, do a deal, do a deal, save my child's life, save the lives of thousands of people. Get in a room and don't leave it until you've done a deal. Really, it affects kind of the UK, Canada, America, Ireland. It's, it's quite a kind of you know that affects a very particular area i don't i don't know why right it affects a very particular area of the world that's interesting that mm. is interesting mm. one of the other things that you deal with in mother is that kath on having this diagnosis really struggles with the other roles in her life mm. and the way you handle it really outlines the fact that women are expected to do so many roles and just get on with it and people keep asking her when are you going back to work and she's like well I've got I've got to deal with I've got to deal with giving my kid like medication eight times a day I don't want to go back to work yet I don't want to think about it what made you want to look at the way that women are treated differently to men in respect of the roles that we're given in life I because I think well it's a really interesting question I think we've come really far I think you know particularly in the last couple of years in terms of how women are perceived by wider society of how women are perceived by men of how but we haven't come far enough and I think you know what I wanted to write about was how those different identities how multiple those identities are when you have a child or when something really difficult happens to you how all of those identities kind of flip on their head they become they kind of stack up in a slightly different order and yet people's expectations of you are still so high mm-hmm you know despite everything that's happened it is still very much expected that it is the woman who is there providing safety warmth and life for the child it's that is society's expectations particularly in that first year of life and i think there is not a single woman i know at the moment who doesn't feel just some sense of guilt about whether you know if they've got a child whether they should be at home with their child or what you know if they're doing something else whether they shouldn't be there or not and I think that comes from society's expectation of your role as caregiver and that as far as I can see men don't feel that guilt as much does that does that make sense I think it's, it's there's just yeah. an external well, we're, pressure we're and we're understanding the yeah yeah. And, yeah and I think that's that creates really that creates guilt guilt I think is a really big that's where the kind of slightly the religious stuff came through. I'm not remotely religious, but there seemed to be a kind of correlation there between what you're expect, what's expected of you as a woman and a mother, and and versus sometimes what you really want to do, which is to, you know, take your hair down, drink a bottle of gin, and go clubbing. Well, Kath even in that situation, that's what I would call a massive fuck it all moment and mm. decide to do the latter were you tempted at any point when you were dealing with stuff to run away yeah no I wasn't I think my running away was writing the book and where can people find out more about cystic fibrosis you can go to the CF Trust website which I think is cftrust.org.uk and you can read my book <laughs> awesome thanks for coming in Hannah thank you very much for having me on
Hello there, Jen here. You might have noticed that one of the current sponsors of the Standard Issue podcast is Clarins, they of skincare fame. But did you also know that Clarins offer treatments including facials and body massages? And as they are introducing two brand new wellness skin spa treatments this month, they've asked us to share a little bit about what we do for me time. So here we go. Avid listeners of the show know that I am sporty spice, as it were, or, you know, the equivalent thereof. So my time out tends to be at the gym or in a park. I take weekly boxing lessons with a trainer, which is excellent for my physical and mental health. I do really hate the skipping, though, if I'm honest. But not only is the boxing an excellent cardiovascular workout, which does all sorts of wonderful things for your, you know endorphins and that it's also a fantastic release of all those little weekly niggles and i also get to feel increasingly like buffy the vampire slayer which is fantastic i'm also a big fan of cycling the eagle-eared among you will know all about beyonce my beautiful bicycle who's accompanied me on many a jaunt be that cross country or just nipping about town in fact i think that i have some of my best most creative thoughts while i'm pedaling away And according to some, that's not just because exercise boosts serotonin and dopamine levels. Some scientists believe that cycling can actually increase your mental capacity by upping your neuron production, promoting the formation of new brain cells. So I'm the kind of person whose mind can be a little bit in overdrive, and I'm certainly prone to a bit of the old overthinking. But in a spin class or lifting some weights in a gym, I find these are pretty much the only times I can actually exercise any sort of mindfulness, as it were, because I'm really thinking about the process or my breathing or even how much pain I'm in. So it's actually quite hard to think about what the specific ordering of words in that text message meant, for example. But what I also love about these physical pursuits is that I'm actually learning some skills. I mean, in fairness, the boxing hasn't had that much use yet, if I'm honest. But look, I date, so you never know. But, of course, all of this sportsing does take its toll on the body. Especially if you never, ever stretch, which I never, ever do, because I'm an idiot. My upper back is like a piece of gristle, basically. But it occurred to me, as Lisa worked her magic on me at Clarins the other week, there are probably all sorts of benefits of massage for sporty types too. Spoiler alert, guys, and it probably won't come as a surprise to anyone with any rudimentary biology knowledge here. Uh, But there actually really are. As well as sorting out that gristly back, because that's hot, right? Massage can have the same kind of impact on weary muscles as stretching, but it's less boring than stretching, right? I know, I know, stretch. Um, Yeah, I'm always being told this by my trainer. Basically, what you're doing is you're reducing muscle tension and preventing those dreaded DOMS. That's delayed onset muscle soreness, yeah? Um, And it can also help improve your flexibility, which is always good if you are a sporty type. Massage can help you get a good night's kip by promoting relaxation, something I also really struggle with, but I do notice a massive difference in my, I want to say athletic performance, but that makes me sound like I'm much better than I am. But let's call it athletic performance. I notice a massive difference when I've slept well. Apparently, a bit of the old muscle pummeling can also help improve circulation and can help drain like lactic acid buildup and calcium aka knots, aka back gristle, which, to be fair, we already knew. So basically what I'm saying is, it's just plain excellent, and I can certainly vouch for this after my recent experience. 
So it's easy to get stressed in modern life, but we all need to take time out. So inspire yourself to do just that with a Clarins wellness treatment, beauty sleep to leave you feeling relaxed and looking rested, or rise and shine to recharge and invigorate. Get yourself over to www.clarins.co.uk forward slash treatments to find out more. Hi, we're here in the studio. We've got something new happening. We're having some music happening. We we're haven't had that. Popping the first our music, time. Ch- our live music cherry. We are. <laughs> we, <laughs> to do it, <laughs> we are joined by Mara Danielli and Claire McGrath. Hello, hello. From the She Street Band. The She Street Band. Well done, yes. guys. Well done. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you ladies. <laughs> you are the world's only all-female Bruce Springsteen yeah. cover band. It's true. So tell me, how do there are seven of you, aren't there? Yeah, seven, there how seven do seven Bruce Springsteen fa- fans find each other to form a cover band? That's fate, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all started with uh, Jodie, who is the other American in the band. Yes, and um, she went to see Bruce at Wembley and just had an amazing time. Just loved the buzz, loved the energy, and uh, then went on a little bit of a mission to find some. Bruce loving ladies. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that doesn't sound like a tricky prospect. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, so a few of us, few of us kind of knew each other already. And then, um, yeah, we, we just looked for more, for more ladies to get involved. We were scouted. Yeah, we're, we're, we're scouted. scouted. <laughs> Are you Bruce enough? <laughs> oh, yeah. What was the criteria? Well, you have to dress in jeans and white t-shirts. Okay. Twenty four seven. You're not in the band anymore, then. Oh uh, well, you know, I, it's my other job. Okay. <laughs> Although you are wearing a bandana. Oh, there there's so go. many yeah. little tweaks of Bruce you can right? incorporate yeah. in. We the all life. have our different Bruce styles that oh, yeah. we emulate. Mm-hmm. You like the bit. seven faces of Bruce. The seven faces of Bruce. Seriously, Bruce. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Mara's sitting here with a guitar on her knee, and we have heard her singing. So we know what you do, Claire. What do you do? In the band i do some singing as well but i also play glockenspiel um which is if you don't know what a glockenspiel is which i actually didn't um, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the instrument um, for you you know when you think of a xylophone yeah it's like a xylophone except it has metal keys and it's the same keys as a piano so if you can if you can whack out something on the piano just get some sticks and there you go there's your glockenspiel job done yeah what do you think the enduring appeal of the boss is Speaking as an American, he's always kind of been a national hero for us. Um, there's just something about him that, I don't know, it really brings out the good sides of America. And I think especially now, um, with everything that America's going through politically and stuff, we have something like Bruce, you know, to really look up to. Where is his Trump album? That is the question, isn't it? Oh, but he has made a lot of Trump talk. He, like, stopped his script at um, his Broadway show and like spoke out about Trump and what he was doing and so he like went off script so he is doing his part but we we are waiting on an album aren't we there will be because there's that really famous story about after September the 11th that he was sitting in his car and somebody knocks on the window and and he wound it down and they said Mm -hmm. Bruce we need an album mate America needs (laughs) you and so he uh, he bought out the rising it was yeah yeah. Yeah. (laughs) what about you as an Irish woman where yeah. where where does the love for Bruce come from I think it's actually it's actually incredible how much of a following he has in Ireland like I was a Bruce fan to begin with but since joining the band it's just kind of gone to a different level I think that's the case with most of us we all joined as Bruce fans 
but then you get really caught up in the energy of it and just the, the really good vibes of it that it just yeah you level up yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk specifics then because Mickey and I are both big Springsteen fans what's okay. what's your favourite album let's start there um, mine is probably Darkness on the Edge of Town my mom got me a t-shirt with the album cover on it when I was quite young and so I was like this is so cool I'm in my Bruce gear it was like a cut off shirt I wore it with my bandana and that and this and um, yeah and I love Candy's Room Badlands and all of that so I think that's that that would have to be my favourite <laughs> It's like, who would you prefer, your mom or your dad? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably The River. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just for party tunes, but also Darkness on the End of Town. It's just... Yeah. And it's like you were saying earlier, the seven faces of Bruce. Like, there's so many different... I don't know, so many different energies and so many different stories yeah. that he brings. Um, kind of in the band, we all have our little roles. So we have like party brews. We Claire. have Claire's party brews. <laughs> <laughs> I like to be party brews. Um, we have like, you know, heartbroken brews. Um, who, oh, you're kind of like rockin' Bruce. Yeah, yeah. Jody's sultry Bruce. There's a sultry Bruce as well. <laughs> so, That's Jody. Yeah, so you know, there's kind of, I don't know, there's something for everyone there. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say it depends what sort of party you're having when you put the river on yeah. Yeah. that particular song yeah. like a lot of the songs yeah. on the album yeah but if you're putting that one yeah. on that is a solo party for crying yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, so, so amazing <laughs> did, you, did you see him when he was at Glastonbury and he did mm. the river I mean he did such a long set at Glastonbury and he was so hot and that it was so cold that steam started rising off him like he was a racehorse <laughs> oh like doing God. the river it was the most amazing thing to watch yeah I'm a really big fan of Magic. Yeah. I think Magic's a really underrated album. Yeah. yeah. It, and he even he's a bit like, it's quite depressing, I never do it live, but I like yeah. a bit of depressing. It's a really angry album, and I think it's really yeah. good for putting on and just thinking, oh, yeah. I feel <laughs> angry. Stuck in there yeah. Yeah. The, the river was tipping my hot spot and like the, the top spot for me, and then uh, for one of my birthdays, we ended up in LA, and my mate had bought us a ticket to go and see Bruce oh, Springsteen, nice. played the river in full, so. Oh, wow. Bruce has got a bit of my heart. Yeah, 100%. and then he just he just played a whole load of other hits, obviously, because he doesn't do like a set, does he? He does six, no. yeah, six yeah. together. Oh, and what about songs? Can we decide what the best Springsteen song is? Is that? Oh, it's I know that's crazy talk. Isn't it? Well, I have like my favorite one, like to perform. Yeah, I think Thunder Road is yes. always yeah. one of my song. favorites. Like you know. You just feel so, that song, you just feel so cool, even yeah. if you're listening yeah. to even it. Even if you're not yeah. cool. <laughs> even if you're not. <laughs> so I yeah. think Thunder Road would probably have to be mine. Yeah. I think, well then again, it's also how you're feeling in that moment. Yeah, I um, think so too. I think an all-time good times favourite rocking out, 10th Avenue Freeze Out. Yeah. I just love it. I yes. just absolutely love it. Yes. Yeah. I think so too. I'm a walking Wait. cliche. It's dancing in the dark. Just oh, makes there me you nothing go. wrong with that. Nothing wrong oh, yeah. with that. We yeah. love that when we love performing. Just it. makes me feel alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I really like Thunder Road. I really like Promised Land as well. Yeah, it's a really cracking. It's like a proper. It's like proper grimy working class talking about yeah. men working in garages. That sort of stuff. <laughs> it really just screams Springsteen, yeah. doesn't it? So, the other thing I have to mention to you guys, you. How long did it take you to come up with that name? Because that name is amazing. The we, She Street Band. We cannot band. take. Well, Mara and I cannot take credit for we that. Credit. That was that was Jody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
just absolutely genius. Yeah. <laughs> but kind of since then, we we play around with what what other female spins you could put on on other band names because oh, yeah. you and Lynn were talking about the Sheedles. The Sheedles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there were a few. There were a few more that they were kind of like undecided when they were when they were picking the name. They thought of Atlantic Titties, and then they thought maybe not. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not family friendly. <laughs> There's a festival called Glaston Budget. Is it? Nice. It's just cover bands. Oh really? Oh, amazing. Budget. I like a bit of proxy music. I think that's a great. Yeah. That's a great one. Proxy music is yeah. very good. <laughs> you sometimes feel like someone's thought of the name and then thinks, "God, I better go I and learn that, some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go and uh, polish up on my Brian Ferry impersonation." <laughs> um, so you are going on a tour of the yes. UK and Ireland. And Ireland. When right. does that start? Uh, we're going. What what date are we leaving? The well, it kind of starts like October third. Yeah. In Brighton. And then we have our big London gig October fourth, and then it's just that week following. Yes, yeah, so, all the days. So we're hitting the... um, Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow, over to Dublin. Yeah, yeah it's... in a week. So we do we do Brighton, London, then we have a few days off, and then we do the other four. Yeah, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, one after every next. day. Yeah. Is there a lucky young man in every audience who you pull up on stage and have a little dance with? <laughs> they usually, it's the drunkest person and they just jump up on their own. They invite themselves. It, yeah. was, it was really funny. Was it at the Grand yeah. that someone got up on stage? And um, the guy who was like organising the, the whole night, he knew, like he was a massive Bruce fan, so he knew at this point someone is going to get themselves on stage. But the security guy didn't know that that was the case. So somebody jumped up on stage, security runs out on stage to try and, you know, sweep this guy away. But the organiser of the event was like, no, no, it's cool. You know, this Bruce would have wanted it. Uh, Bruce isn't dead. Don't speak about him in the past tense. Can oh I God. just apologise in advance for the fact that probably be me or Mickey when yeah. we come to see you in oh, London? Please. And when please. she says or, she means and. Um, <laughs> I got quite short legs. I don't know if I'll make it up on well, the stage. That's why you need me to hoard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> guys, just keep with the instrumental bit for a bit longer. <laughs> we'll be there in 20 minutes. <laughs> so, where can people find out more? You can uh, follow us on Instagram. Yes. Instagram, we have a website that's actually quite beautiful. Um, and does it have a URL? That's my favourite bit of a website. It does. Is it live yet? Is it live yet? I the think website. Maybe it's better to follow us on Instagram first, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and then obviously link in bio, all that. Facebook, our Facebook is really active and our Twitter is very active as well. So, Which is at the She Street Band. Yeah, at the She Street Band. Awesome. And tickets are still available? Yes. Yes, they are. Great. Yes. Still available, so come. It's a lot of fun. It seems like it. I think yeah, we're absolutely. going. Yeah. So you are going to play us out with a song, I which am. is the exciting thing that we've never tried before. What are you doing for us today? I'm playing Darkness on the Edge of Town. I feel like I should say, take it. What do people say? Take it away. No. Keep it here. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting out at the trestle, but that blood it never burned in vain. Now I hear she's got a house up in Fairview, in a style she's trying to maintain. If she wants to see me, you can tell her.
I've had my lighter out in the studio. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. Wow. Oh, we're totally coming to see you. Yes. And thank you so much for coming in, course, not only to talk to us, us, but to sing to us. Yeah. Oh, we are happy to do that. That's what we do. But the only thing, I'm upset that you guys didn't do the, in, in the audience, all the fans, we were really concerned at first, because um, all the fans go, Bruce. Throughout the songs, okay. and we thought they were booing us. <laughs> we were like, "Oh no!" <laughs> so next time, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> well, well, when we're, I'm pushing Hannah onto your stage. <laughs> 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 Hello, I'm at Charlton Athletics Training Ground, which is quite exciting. As uh, listeners of the podcast will know, I am a lifelong fan. More importantly, I am here with Charlie Clifford and Amber Stobbs from the Charlton Athletic women's team. Hello, guys. Thanks for letting me come and chat to you. 
the new women's championship season, which is about to kick off, which is the second tier, the second highest tier in the country after the Women's Super League. And it's it's a brand new league, right? Yeah, so every club that wanted to get into this league and the Super League as well had to apply for the leagues. And if you were successful, then you fortunately got into the league. But if you wasn't successful, then you'd have to drop down into the National League. Yeah, same as what Charlie said. But I think fortunate that as well as a good application, Charlton won our way up, I'd say. I'm new this year, so girls last year did a great job. And you've come from West Ham, is that right? Yes, I have. A bit of local rivalry, surely. It was a big rivalry, actually, I think, last year. We, West Ham, didn't do as well as Charlton in the table, but we had some good head-to-head games. But um, I've come out on the right side now. <laughs> so Charlton have got a bit of sort of chequered history in the women's side of things, so you've had a few ups and downs. Fortunately, you've had more ups than the men's team, latterly. Charlie, you've been here for quite a long time, haven't you? You've got over 200 appearances. You must have seen it all. Yeah, so I was here from the age of 12. Um, so back then, the women's first team, they was, they was one of the top teams in the country. Um, so there was always a big rivalry between us and Arsenal. Unfortunately, the men's team didn't do so well and they got relegated, um, to which the the men's team did pull the funding on the women's team because they were our sole funders. Then, fortunately, with the help of Sue, Sue Pryor, our secretary, she got everything back up and running with some other help, to which we've always kind of just been trying to get back where we was. We've had previous sort of times where we've had some very good squads but we've just missed out on, on things like winning the league, which has been quite disappointing. So to do it last year with a, a new group of players as well um, and to get that togetherness and for everyone to put in the hard work because I don't think us as a club realise how much hard work it, it took to, to get to where we wanted to be and to win the league. So fortunately last year we everyone put, put all of their efforts into getting us where we needed to be and fortunately... We won the playoff final and now we're kind of getting there. So hopefully more to come. You've got pretty good pedigree at the club. You've had some big names at Charlton. Casey Stoney, Katie Chapman, Enia Luco, Farrell Williams, to name a few. Who can we expect to see coming through? What big names can we are we going to see in the future? A uh, big name for Charlton women football now, I think, is Kit Graham. And I'm really excited to play with her this year. Obviously played against her last year. Sort of one of those forwards... I think right, I could link up well with her on the pitch. I'd like to play with her, and now it's exciting that I am. Again, she proved on the weekend what sort of player she is. She got in the team of the week, two goals, and one of them was a smasher, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So she's just a great player, to be honest, and a good person as well. So she's just exciting to have her around. I'm sure her rep and her football, mm-hmm. she'll be a big name. It's a new era for women's football, I guess. So the whole idea of these new tiers is to make everything a bit more professional and develop the game, and there's all sorts of requirements about what clubs rather have had to put into training budgets and things in order to meet the requirements to get into these new leagues. You're up against some big clubs who are going to be vying for promotion next year. So we're talking about Man United, Tottenham, even Leicester, you would think of as a pretty big club these days. How do you rate your chances 
in the league this season? As long as we all stick together, as long as we all work hard for each other, as long as we've all got, got each other's backs um, and we work hard on the football pitch together and we don't go off individually, we have the team spirit that we had last year. We need to try and get that into the team this year. We have made a lot of new signings this year, which is only going to benefit us. So if we can get the team spirit as high as possible, we know that we can step out onto the pitch and we will work for each other. And when that happens, then good things happen. I think our chances of competing in the league are great. Charlie's right in the sense of we need to still work to get there, things on and off the pitch, but I think we're in good shape for it. Um, obviously, there are big clubs, but football's football and most of the time it depends on the day so if each of us put 100% in from now because we've had a good pre-season so far then uh, I think we'll do ourselves proud You're here, you're in the second highest league in the country what does it mean to you guys to be here and what does it mean for women's football this development of of the league structure? No I think it's good, it obviously means I think it means a lot to each and every single one of us we can hold our heads high that we're playing at this level Um, like I said the second um, highest in the country I think that for the development of women's football, it's good. I work with young girls playing football. It's nice to know that they do look up to people like us. I've had some girls asking today about our next game and stuff like that, so that's good. Just think the new development and the new structure of it. It is harsh in a sense of people have had to apply and prove that they have everything, but I do think that this year it might allow players to come first in the treatment of players and the standards that clubs have to have because, unfortunately, women's football is still trying to catch up to the rest of football. But, yeah, I think that this is putting us in a good place to have good standards at a club, uh, player treatment well, you know, certain contact hours a week that we have to have, and I think that will only help us push on um, as individuals and as a team. With the, the rise of the England first team, I think that's had a major impact on people that don't really necessarily watch uh, women's football, and especially because they got the bronze in the World Cup and I know a hell of a lot of people watched that and it actually kind of changed their mind to women's football so I think it's the profile is just getting better and better and by the change in the leagues hopefully that's just going to improve that as well. You guys both have day jobs and you are actually working with Mark Noble who's the West Ham captain on a training camp for for younger girls and teenagers called Equal Focus Football. Can you tell us a bit about that Amber? Yeah so it's been running now I think six weeks. I previously met him when I was at West Ham, started working with him close there. He already has a football camp, MNF, and it's not targeted to girls but it's mixed. Um, we started noticing that once I started coaching, the numbers went from the first camp was three girls, and then three camps later we had 18. So me and him were talking about it and said, well, we could set up something solely for girls now. Obviously the interest there, and I had a lot of feedback that some of the girls prefer playing with girls only and stuff like that. I think that um, probably every player on our team's had them battles. I mean, when I was a kid, I was the only girl in my school that played. Yes. I played in a boys' league. I was the only girl in the yeah. whole league. I had the nerves to every game. My dad was like, you know, saying, oh, come on, you got this one. Another weekend. I'm like, where's the girls' football at? Um, and then I was fortunate that my mum actually worked in a club. So I went down there for a summer camp and then got into women's football for that. But I think I noticed now, in a lot of areas, there's not enough for girls. So kind of myself and Mark are working to create more opportunities for them. We had our first camp two weeks ago and we had 26 girls. 
We've had a fun day event there, 26 new girls as well. So it's going well so far. We've got a camp this week. It's just really to help girls enjoy football with other girls. The good thing about us is we've got the opportunity that if girls see the boys playing over there and they want to, they're free to go and play with them. So it's kind of encourage them just to play wherever they're comfortable and get them comfortable normalising women's football, I think. But it's important, isn't it, if you, can, if you can see it, you can be it. The younger girls need to see the older ones sort of representing them and, and showing them that it is a world that they're welcoming. Who did you look up to when you were a younger player? Playing for Charlton, I probably would have been like Katie Chapman and Casey. So as a kid, they used to play down at Eversleet, which was reasonably close. So me and my dad used to go down there and, and watch near enough all their home games. Kelly Smith and Rachel Yankee. They, I, I see that Arsenal Charlton Murphy. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up playing for Arsenal. You see. And then Casey Stoney was actually my manager at Chelsea Academy. So it's funny. I can't really say her name because she, yeah. she knows exactly who I am. Amber, you played in a team in the US, which was the reserve team for the Women's Super League. Washington Spirit team. So how, what kind of differences have you noticed between women's football in the UK and women's football in the US? I think there's a big difference in support, to be honest. They get thousands at their games. I think probably the big difference comes from that we've got men's football, although we shouldn't, men's football to catch up and compete with. It should be obviously one game, but that's the kind of world we're living in. Whereas out there, they've got a lot of other sports, American sports, for the men that play there. And MLS, I don't think, it's not as big as the Premier League here. So the girls' football there, women's football's taken over. Big one is support, another one's funding. And I think just the demand for it out there, like, I think girls are normalised to it at a younger age. I think families are pushing their girls to play soccer out there. Oh, I just slipped back into my American days. Uh, no, it's not. It's just for the American listeners. Uh, <laughs> and I think they have youth clubs everywhere out there. It's honestly a different world. The pro game, I think ours is definitely caught up with theirs. I think now as well, ours is probably more stable, if I'm allowed to say that, with the new standards and stuff like that. But it's just a different world. It's really fun and exciting out there. Um, and I, hopefully, I think, like Charlie said, after the World Cup, that's improved here massively. So I left for America when I was 17. And then I was watching the World Cup, what, 22, I think I was? 22, 23. And watching that honestly made me want to come back to England and play football. And watching the team have all their passion and work as a team, I was like, I miss English football. And so I did come back and play. It's just different football out there as well, isn't it? It's a lot more fitness and physicality. Mm -hmm. Here, I think, we like to get the ball down and play. The last two years, England women's team have become one of the fittest anyway. Yeah. So I think we're in good hands. Because I know you guys are not fully professional here. You have your day jobs as well, as we just sort of talked about, and talking about America and the way the women's game has sort of taken off in the US. What do you think it will take for you to achieve anything like parity with the men's game? Should people focus on just enjoying the women's game for the product that it is? I think now, I think it's come a, lot, a long way, to be honest. And I think it is enjoying it for what it is, but trying to build it and help the younger generations. So I think it, we are years off of that, but the more we help the younger generations, the more girls that we have now and the ladies that we have later playing will be. I don't think it necessarily needs to be compared all the time. I just think that... The money in men's football is just... It's gone from being not very much to buy a player to 
ridiculous yes, amounts yes. Of, of money to buy a player whereas because we never had growing up to be a professional mm. so in that sort of sense for, for a young girl to grow up to be a professional footballer and have that ambition is great but I just think the money just will never ever compare but there is an argument some of those clubs do have the money why aren't they spending more on their women's team shouldn't they be you know this 50 year period of catching up women's football was banned effectively for 50 years maybe they should be helping out a bit more the prices for men's tickets and the amount of players they get in. I also think that because of the rise in money in the men's game and how much it is to play, uh, to buy a player and stuff, it's been, they're being run as businesses. Mm. So mm-hmm. in their eyes as a business, except for community and our women team are going to have this, 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 then if they're thinking about profit and stuff like that, unfortunately women's game's not there yet. I think that's why a lot of people get scared to back it but I do think credit to some men teams because they are helping out a lot and now on social media and stuff like that you see it's much more integrated combined obviously we're training at the men's training ground I don't know if that would have happened years ago I actually went to a Premier League game the other day and a man asked me walking up to it like oh the party the festival you're going to is around there and I said no I'm actually going to watch a game I was by myself and they said oh you're by yourself and I was like, oh, this guy's a bit of a lad, you know. I don't. <laughs> and he was like, you're coming to watch football by yourself. And then he was like, you must be strong. And I must be a strong, independent woman. And then I said, I actually play football. And then he was really interested. And I think that shifted. I think, you know, if someone did that, it yeah. would have been heckle, 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 you know. And I think even that, the first impression was, I was like, oh, here we go. But then he was very, very interested. Mm. I think men's attitudes have shifted towards it. And I think, again, the difference in... England women's team and how how good they're doing for us. Obviously, the 20s just won a bronze as well, and the FA's just put a bid in for the Euros. So mm-hmm. hopefully, we can host that and women's football will be booming. Mm-hmm. So where can we come and watch you play? We play at VCD Athletic, which is in Crayford, Oakwood Park. Uh, it's a new stadium for us this year, um, so we've only played there two, three times. So it's a bit of a difference to, to the older players that were here last year, but we just want to make that our own now because we, we've been previously known for playing quite well at home and having unbeaten records at home, so hopefully that will uh, May long it continue. So go and watch them because it's cheaper than a men's match and you'll probably get less protests. Um, Anyway, where can we find you on Twitter? So you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is CAFC Women. You can find me, it's um, no, it's Amber Stobbs. Nice and simple. (laughs) Mine's Charlie Clifford. (laughs) Simple. Keep it real. (laughs) Ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you very much. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week, I watched 2002's Treasure Planet. Yeah, you fucking did. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Disney's 43rd, 43rd animated feature based on Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, if indeed it is. Fun fact, fun fact. I mean, to be honest, this isn't fun. But uh, it's the most fun. It's the first film ever to be released in cinemas and at IMAX cinemas at the same time. (gasps) Oh my god, you had to watch that like really big. No, I just watched it on my tiny TV. No, I meant but some home. people had to watch it really big. Yeah. Yeah. And it's That's also it's, it's 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 a part of 
his 2D old style hand drawn and then also 3D, which uh, a level of 3D, which my nephew described as rubbish. The level of 3D where you can get two quality street rappers and put them out one over each eye and it feels like I mean, you're there. I actually, I actually watched this with my nephew. It's interesting because Treasure Planet is clearly such a, a dud that, or certainly bombed so much at the box office that I'm 44, he's 12. You would think that somewhere between one of us would have heard of this, seen it, something. No, total mystery to all of us. Stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, David Hyde Pierce, Roscoe Lee Brown, and some people that just have two names, including Emma Thompson, Laurie Metcalf, and Patrick McGowan in his final film role. And it made me think we should maybe do a piece at some point about people's final roles and whether or not that's ever really a decent representation of of who they were as actors. And I would hope that for Patrick McGowan, the answer is no. You, you, were, you were really distracted during watching Treasure Planet then. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I'd never seen it before. I watched it with my nephew. He had never seen it before. Did either of you guys watch it? I had to watch it on my own, Hannah. I didn't have a nephew to watch it with. I just didn't watch it, obviously. Uh, I've never Jen heard of it. made the right call. <laughs> I've never heard of it. It's exactly. And I'm sad from from the fact that I've never heard of it, that it has Emma Thompson and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Levitt, and Laurie Metcalf. And Laurie Metcalf in it. That saddens me. There, I said it. Did you like it? <sighs> I don't know. I did ask my nephew afterwards if he liked it, and he said no. And then I asked him the next day. And he was like, oh, it wasn't complete rubbish. And I think that's probably the best I can sum up for it. It wasn't complete rubbish. Agreed, but it has got a fairly good story for which to hang itself on. Quite. For Jen and for people who obviously have never heard of Treasure Planet either, it opens on a child reading a fancy book. I mean, like, as in the pictures are moving. Um, it's not reading. He's watching a book. Okay. He's that's also the, not a book, is it? That's, that's, that's the, an iPad. Well, it, no, but it it's kind the future, of... future, Jen, watching books. <laughs> it kind of, like, it does look like a book. Yeah. Is I this think, set in the future? Yeah, I think they're supposed to... We're certainly set in space. I mean, I don't right, think it's okay. supposed to be Alien the future. future. Mm. I mean, it's a very much a steampunk future. The ships, the spaceships look like ships. Do they all wear top hats? No. And stripy socks on? No. No. That's what steampunk looks like isn't it That's, it's a very rough idea of what steampunk looks like <laughs> sure oh um, yeah the spaceships are space boats oh yeah nice yeah so it opens with this kid reading a book with his mum mum played by Laurie Metcalf that is the obligatory jump forward in time and we see him he's now I know I'd say about 18 which is kind of unusual because most Disney princesses women characters are around that age but most Disney male characters tend to be younger, they tend to be smaller boys, like little boys rather than like teenage boys. Apart from like Aladdin, it's probably the only one I can think of. Anyway, he's being chased by the robot police because he's a wrong un, uh, which you can tell by the fact that he has like this, what I can only describe as a meth cooking haircut. It's like sort <laughs> of part shaved and part ponytail. So yeah, he's being a bit of a, I don't know, what would you say? Oh, he's, an, he's a nerd A young well. offender or yeah. whatever. He's, he's cruising for an Asbo. He is. <laughs> a steampunk Asbo. But what happens before that happens is a spaceship crashes near his mum's pub. Somebody's piloting it. He dies. He hands him a map. A map. It's Billy Bones, mate. It is Billy Bones. Passes him a map, which enables him to discover the 
Treasure Planet, which is like Treasure Island. Okay, I mean, I don't want to explain to people because I'm thinking most people will get the plot of Treasure Island, so maybe I need to. Some treasure. Yeah, and he also warns him about a cyborg, right? Then what happens is I needed to go for a wee, and I left my nephew in charge. And when I came back, he, I said, what happened? And he said, oh, what you missed was a 30-second scene. Now, I think we can all agree that that is probably how long I had gone for, because yeah. I do pee quickly. Thunder slash. Yeah. And I said, what did I, what did I miss? He said a 30-second scene that lasted 30 seconds too long. So, <laughs> as you can tell, he was really enjoying it at this point. Anyway, by this point, they've found themselves on a boat. You know, they've hired a crew. They're going to go off. He got with him... Um, a kind of dog creature who is played by David High Pierce. They hire a boat which is uh, has a captain who is a cat thing. Cat thing? She's a cat thing. A cat thing, yeah. Cat not thing cat. captain? Yeah. Cat thing captain called Amelia, which is odd. Obviously. Um, <laughs> and uh, she's played by Emma Thompson and she has a what I can only describe as a pre-mutinous crew. Pre-mutinous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is where he first meets John Silver, who is part man, part Swiss Army knife. And he thinks this is probably the cyborg that he's been warned about. How many of those caffeine drugs did you take, Helen? <laughs> Why? This sounds like a bonkers. fever dream, isn't it? Yeah. It's actually what I'm doing in my head is every time Hannah mentions the character, I just work out which Muppet played them in Muppets Treasure <laughs> Island, wow. which is what I would recommend people watch instead. Instead, absolutely. Thus starts uh, what I can only describe as a full-on point-break type relationship <laughs> between Silver and Jim. I've not seen Point Break. Have you not? Sorry, I know. I knew that was going to be the reaction. Uh, But are they father and son in it? I thought they were sexy times having a lovely... No, they are mentor and mentee. Oh, okay. And that's kind of what this relationship is. Banging surfers. You must know the... You must have seen the scene because I'm assuming that you have seen Hot Fuzz. They shooting your gun in the air and shouting, ah. Yes, I have seen that. Okay. I don't know that it had any relevance to me, having not seen Point Break. Okay, well, the point is that he can't bring himself to shoot like the person he considers a father figure, which actually does happen yeah, in this. True. I think it's also... Um, Did Kino and Swayze not get it on then? I, I mean, no, they de- they definitely don't. They must have... They bonded ever so quickly in that film, didn't they, if you think about it? In Point Break, it. not yeah. as quickly as they bond in this one. Hmm. But unfortunately, nobody throws a dog during a chase, which is the best <laughs> bit in Point Break by 100 miles. I'd forgotten. <laughs> the David Hyde Pierce dog does fall over a lot. Maybe that's their tip of the hat to it. <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, uh, John Silver has this creature called Morph, which is a shape-shifting pet, which I think is supposed to be a sort of modern replacement for a parrot. But I'm yes, telling you, is. parrots are one of the most annoying things on the face of the earth. And they look less annoying in comparison to Morph. Morph is the most irritating Disney character since Gurgi. Do you remember Gurgi? I try to forget. Why would you do that to me? And also Muppet's Treasure Island, he has a lobster, which is very funny. One point, my nephew just apropos of nothing, just went, I ate Morph. (laughs) We were watching this. Gurgi. So they go off to try and find Treasure Planet. You know, they find Treasure Planet, like a Goonies-style adventure, kicks off. Is there songs? I can hear Jen thinking, is there songs? Yeah. Oh, my God, are there songs? Some dude from the Goo Goo Dolls, so those songs are exactly as good as you'd expect them to be. (laughs) I fucking love Iris. Fucking awful. You don't. I love the song Iris. Iris. (laughs) I've been Hannah Tullivy. Thank you very much. Good night. (laughs) Can I tender my resignation? The Angry Harridans have broken up before their first (laughs) And I thought we were going to cover Iris as well. Yeah, that was going to be my first suggestion. Mm. 
Those songs are awful, though, right? Oh, the, the songs in the film are terrible. Oh, I thought we were still talking about the Goo Goo Dolls. I was going yeah, to well, defend Iris, but, you know. It's John Resesnick from the Goo Goo Dolls, who is, I don't know, sat in a bin crying and strumming one out on his pink guitar. That's I'd, why it's gone into this film. I'd say that style of music, certainly, there was a time and a place for it. And It's after a bottle of red wine round at my house on yeah. a Friday night, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> It's the 90s. (laughs) Or that. Just any time in the past will do, mate. The dialogue is weird. And one of the weirdest things about it is it contains a lot of incorrect nautical expressions. And I don't understand why. For example, they say that they don't like the cut of somebody's sails. Now, the expression is clearly cut the jib. Exactly. There's another bit where they talk about finding drabloons. Hang on. Do you think they spaced it up a bit? Well, this is the thing. At one point, they call people who live in space spacers, which was something my nephew obsessed about for a full day after this. <laughs> Just kept saying, what's a spacer? What's a spacer? What's the uh, seafaring equivalent? A sailor? Yeah. Yeah, I presume so. That doesn't fall into the incorrect category. That falls into the category of what the fuck. I can't say sailor without thinking about Cheryl Cole on who do you think you are or that photo of Cheryl Cole's corpse on that boat <laughs> how what? have you both missed this this weekend this is, I've, I've been updated Hannah's updated me this has gone really weird and there's a photograph that somebody's put on Instagram of them of Cheryl Cole and Cheryl Cole looks dead in the she photograph does. there's she no two about it Oh. And it's been doing the rounds on Twitter with statements like... Um, you okay, hon? Is, is this the remake of Weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> Just stop what you're doing, press pause, find that photograph, and then come back. Not you, Jen, you can't do that. Have you ever seen the Who Do You Think You Are that she was on? No. It's fucking incredible, right? There's a bit where they go, where they're talking... She's talking to her dad about uh, some relatives from the past, and it's revealed to her that, bearing in mind she's from from Newcastle, famously. Uh, it's revealed to her that um, some of her relatives were sailors. And she, <laughs> she goes, he was a sailor, but I don't even like the sea. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like fucking flabbergasted by it. She's like, coal miners I was expecting, but not sailors. And she is like <laughs> losing her shit over it. Anyway, watch it. It's fantastic. I know their great 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 granddad was a spacer. Yeah, yeah, he was a spacer. <laughs> I don't even like the sky. <laughs> <laughs> um, is this film racist? Uh, well, actually, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what be a it. neat segue. <laughs> I think now that I'm should be like a reg- people in Newcastle. Can we take the piss out of anyone else? I think that should be a regular question that I ask you on Dunleavy <laughs> Does Disney. Dunleavy, is this film racist? Race? Well, I mean, it's not really an issue because there isn't really race in it. There are only three female characters. One's I mean, a cat. Yeah, but it is definitely a woman. Okay. Um, that's Emma Thompson. There's Laurie Metcalf. And cool. then there's someone in the crew who kind of looks like she doesn't have a bottom half. It's very weird. I'd, obviously, it could do with more <laughs> female characters in it. The only other thing worth mentioning is that towards the end of the film, there is one redeeming feature, and that is that Ben Gunn appears, and he is a robot being played by Martin Short. And I have to say, it is a relatively restrained performance from Martin Short, given how crazy over the top he generally is. 
And he's, I actually he's not think three amigos in it. No, I actually think it's one of the best things Martin Short's done. I think he almost single-handedly <laughs> saves this film at the end because otherwise it was heading for disaster. Yeah. Oh, the robot is pretty cute. It's, it's kind of. I think it's um, it's the note on dementia. That's what I think that robot is. Because he loses his mind, doesn't he? Well, he's had his mind stolen. Yeah, yeah. quite literally loses his mind. I think it's a mind. very thoughtful note on dementia and ageing. Okay. Hannah, what score are you giving it? I'm going to give it two. Two what? I'm going to give it two, pointing your gun in the sky and going, ah, out of five. <laughs> I'm going to give it two and a dog throw. <laughs> two thrown dogs. <laughs> That's nearly all for this week. Thanks very much for listening, if indeed you've got this far. I'd just like to add that, during our natter with the bloody lovely Mara and Claire of the She Street Band, I proper brain fart blanked when asked to think of my favourite cover band name, which Hannah kindly edited out so my dickheadery remains a secret. Oh, until now. Anyway, Credence Clearwater Revival Revival. Lovely stuff. If you like what we do, it is enormously helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes, and I won't try to influence the number of stars you give us by saying five. Also, we have a Patreon now, and if you've any spare change you'd like to send our way, we would be most grateful. You can have a nose at that over at www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue. Any wedge you can spare all goes to help us keep making loads of women championing content. Talking of which, this week we have another double helping of Sunday Chops. Me and Hannah met author and journalist Caitlin Davis to talk about her brilliant book, Bad Girls, which is a cracking history of Holloway Prison and a timely study of what prison life means for women. And our Jen will be chatting to Chidera Egaru, aka The Slumflower, about her book, What a Time to Be Alone. What a time to have ears on a Sunday, more like. You can see us chatting to Chidera in the Bonafide Flesh at the London Podcast Festival. We've got a show at 2pm on Saturday the 15th of September at King's Place, where alongside the Slumflower, we're also joined by host of wannabe podcast Imriel Morgan and fireworks stand-up Angela Barnes. We would love to see you there. Hannah and I have promised Jen will do some sort of a special dance for her birthday and you would not want to miss that, right? Details of all our gigs can be found at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. And yeah, I'd best leave you to get booking those tickets. Until the next time, stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.